pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, would you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 will be beginning in verse 13. If you want to follow along with the Black Pew Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, you can find it on page 558. Ecclesiastes 9 will be beginning in verse 13. I'm always fascinated by jobs that don't seem to make any sense that people actually have in the world that I would like to have at least for like a week. One of those jobs, uh, particularly in large major cities, are people whose sole job is to go into people's homes who have died and clean them. You're like, wow, Jeremy, this is going somewhere. (laughs) The reason why it's so fascinating is because when you look at somebody's home, it kind of, you learn a lot about the person and it's, both weirder and not as weird when you're scoping person stuff out who's dead because, I mean, they're gone. If you were to root around my house right now, I'd be like, what are you doing, right? But if I'm gone, like, who cares? Like, well, I mean, Marge would probably care, but like, let's say she's gone too. Sole job is to look at everything. Now, if I had this job, then there's one part of the house that would be of particular interest to me. It's by far the most interesting part of anybody's house. The junk drawer. Right? Raise your hand if you have a junk drawer. There we go. Or a junk box, right? Some of you, like, you're, this is going to be a little shameful, right? Like a junk closet or a junk room or something, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about, like, hoarder stuff, right? I'm talking, like, the thing where it's all the stuff that is, like, sometimes the most important stuff in your life. It doesn't make much sense. In fact, if, if somebody else comes over, you're kind of apologetic, Right? But if hardly, if if almost anything happens in your house, you go right to that drawer. It's where you keep the super glue and like that one screw, right? Maybe some snacks. I don't know. Definitely a flashlight. There's all these kinds of things and you know where everything is, right? If somebody comes into my house and goes, where are the random screws in your house? I would be like, that is in the back right corner all the time. Now, partially this is because I'm married to Marjorie and she keeps that thing orderly. However... We all know what's in that junk drawer. Who cares? We should care because this morning, the preacher, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, is about to show us his junk drawer. That is the only way to even potentially understand the passage that lies before us this morning, which is by far the most confusing, random passage in the book of Ecclesiastes, if not one of the most confusing and random passages in the Bible. Commentators are all just like, I don't know what this is doing in here, in this order. Now, the preacher has been on quite a journey. We've been on it with him, talking about the big things of life. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to die? What do we do in the in-between time? The preacher's just gotten done telling us that because we live towards an absolutely sure death and an unsure life, then what we should do is just enjoy life the best we can until we're dead. It's not in spite of the fact that we're going to die. It's because we're going to die. 
that we should appreciate today as an absolute gift from God, however this day comes to us, which some days is really easy to do, and a lot of days is pretty difficult. That was the last section. And coming off of that section and headed in towards the end of the book that kind of is the part that people understand and like, it is as if the preacher goes, okay, now that I got some of that big stuff out of the way, let me just throw some random bits of wisdom at you before I close this thing down. That's the section we have before us this morning. The contents of the preacher's junk drawer. One of solid and helpful practical things if we can just get past the mess. So let's read it. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, reading through the end of chapter 10 in verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. There was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. The anger of the ruler rises against you. Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If a serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happier you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof caves sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Feel my pain. I'd like to title today's sermon, True, But, that's all. <laughs> Given that this section is very proverbial in nature, which means that there's lots of little sections that are hard-hitting, 
kind of random little sections. I have gone out on a limb and decided to break this text into six parts, which I will give the titles to when we get there. I'll be honest with you, uh, this is not the most excited I've ever been to preach a text. There's an analogy we have about preaching that has to do with baseball. So if you are neither a baseball fan or a preaching fan, this will mean nothing to you. But just stick with me for a second. The, the goal of a preacher is to get on base. It's all we're trying to do sometimes. And sometimes we step up here convinced we're going to hit a home run, which means you get on all the bases. And sometimes you're like, all right, I think I can just like, you know, knock it over there and get on base. Sometimes you get up in the pulpit and you're like, I'm just going to get hit by the pitch, right? I'm just going to try and get over there somehow. That's one of these mornings. This whole week I've been wandering around my study. Spencer just watched me like pace like a zombie in my study, just not knowing what to do because this section is so random. Here's the thing I want to leave you with this morning, I hope. There are only two ways to live, wisdom and foolishness. Pursue the one and avoid the other. The idea of this two ways kind of idea is found throughout ancient Near East literature, particularly in the Bible. There's only two ways to go. There's only two things you can do. So choose one and not the other. This section is interesting because the preacher, in essence, says, yes, two ways. But here's the thing. Those two ways aren't nearly as black and white as we would often like them to be. In other words, the goal of the preacher, as has been his goal for so many occasions in the book of Ecclesiastes, is to make problematic the easy world you think you live in. It's to wake up those who would much rather just coast through life. The preacher encourages us to take the path of wisdom and avoid the path of foolishness, but tells us that along the way, not a whole lot might make sense. And you might be thinking... Man, Jeremy, I've been here for this series on Ecclesiastes, and I've heard all this already. Why did I come to church this morning? We won't have testimony time, but I'm willing to guess that we have all both pursued and avoided, to some degree, the wrong things this week. Maybe just a little bit, maybe a lot, but the reality is that nobody has done all of what they ought to have done this week. See, the truth is, friends, is that we don't need to constantly hear new truths. We need to remember the truths that we're being constantly told and obey them. Therefore, what I'm about to say this morning is, in some ways, a royal waste of time. Because you all know the vast majority of what I'm about to say. The question is, do you live in accordance with what you already know? We'll see. Point number one. Better a wise man than a great king. Kind of. Chapter 9, verses 13 to 16. In every one of these sections, the preacher is kind of saying, yeah, true, but... And here's the first one. We have a nice little parable at the beginning. It's classic. Little city, angry king, wise old man. Wise old man saves little city from the big king. Ta-da! Great story, and everybody claps their hands. Here's the tragedy, though. The old man's forgotten. 
Sure, it's better to be wise than to be powerful, the preacher says. But, as he points out in verse 16, being wise isn't going to assure that people listen to you or do what you suggest. You ever have experience of this, right? You tell the story, the, the, the parable sounds good, right? Saves them, and everybody goes, yeah, listen to the wise man. Oh, shoot, we forgot about him. But you know what? I just need to say wise things. And if I say wise things to my children, to my employees, to my coworkers, to my jerk neighbor, then they are going to do what I suggest because I am wise. And lots of times they just blow you off. This perspective, however bleak you might find it this morning, we realists would just name it as truth, is a needed part of wisdom literature. The reason why is because sometimes the Bible's wisdom comes across as so patently ridiculous and black and white that you have trouble believing it. Let me give you two examples. Oftentimes people quote Proverbs to me as if there are some kind of magical promises for anybody that would do them. So, Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord leads to life. And you're like, oh yeah? Well then, why do like good, honest, sincere Christians die young? Uh, well, uh, or possibly my favorite, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. People saying this, like it's some kind of magical incantation. I just do the right thing and my kids do the right thing. And they grow up and then they're super depressed because their kids are all a bunch of raging jerks. Why did all did everything I was supposed to do? I followed the manual. I took my kids to that little program. I beat them when I was supposed to. And I said I was sorry. I only got angry half the time. Everything was great. I can't tell you the number of parents that I've had, like depressed, possibly deeper than I've seen anybody depressed. It's like I did everything I was supposed to do and it didn't turn out right. You go, oh, I'm terribly sorry, you just had some fool reading the Proverbs to you as if he was wise. Being wise is definitely better than being foolish, but it doesn't always work. And thankfully, the writer of Ecclesiastes comes and tells us that not everything works out the way we want it to. See, one reason why we need the whole counsel of God, all of the Bible, is because no single verse in the Bible can give you all the truth that's in there. Now, this should not shock anybody. Although we live our lives that way, we just kind of quote a verse, and then all of a sudden that norms all of our lives. You don't believe that when it comes to your employment contract. You don't believe that when it comes to some historical document. And you definitely don't believe that when it comes to the love letter that you got when you were 14. Yet somehow, magically, we come to the Bible, we think one verse, there it is, it's the whole truth. Jeremy, why should I read the Bible? Well, because unless you know everything that's in here, and you're continually seeking to draw it all together, some of this just won't make sense. So do you need Proverbs? Yes. Do you need Ecclesiastes? Absolutely. You need them both, because it puts life in this tensioned balance of, we need to be wise, but it doesn't always work. Better a wise man than a great king. Kind of. Number two, foolishness ruins everything. Chapter 9, verse 17 through chapter 10, verse 3. Once again, the 
Preacher reaches into his junk drawer to find something else and pulls out this little nifty bit. Verse 17 sounds really good. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Well, that seems self-evidently true, of course. The section of the passage is connected to the last one through the idea of the wise being heard or not heard. That truth is a great one. The problem is in verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Still, we're pretty good. But one sinner destroys much good. Hold on. What's more powerful then? Wisdom or the one sinner? It's amplified in the next verse. Chapter 10, verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Hold on a second. I thought you said that wisdom was greater than the machines of war, and now you're telling me that one fool ruins everything, right? One bad apple spoils the bunch. I don't know how that thing goes, but that's the general idea here. It's true, right? So what is important, the 99 or the 1? Well... In one sense, the 99. In another sense, the 1. The reality is that foolishness ruins everything. Not just for you, but for all those around you. Foolishness is no game. It wrecks everything. Leading those who follow it down the opposite path of the wise. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's to the left. So it's both bad for you and bad for everybody around you. It's not as if we have to guess of whether the fool is a fool or not, right? Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Good job. It's just a problem for everybody. Notice, two ways to live. So be wise, because being a fool wrecks everything. Even though being wise is incredibly powerful, the reality is that foolishness wrecks everything. Number three. Bad rulers flip the world upside down. Verses 4 through 7. Again, it begins with a great statement. Verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Right? The cool heads in the room will prevail. That only makes sense for everybody who's never been in a room before. Right? And it's true sometimes. Do you ever do that? You ever, are you ever that person, right? You just got the boss or like the person who thinks they're the boss like raging against the machine and you're like, well, okay, I hear you, but I don't think you hear yourself, not to be offensive. And you just kind of explain it and they're like, oh yeah, it's true. That happens every once in a while and it can happen. And it's great when it does happen. But then here's the problem. Verses 5 through 7. Bad rulers just mess everything up. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun. It was a great error proceeding from the ruler. Folly has set in many high places. Rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Just turn it all upside down. Like, here's the thing. If you have, and we've seen this before in Ecclesiastes, if you have terrible rulers, they're just going to do what terrible rulers do. You can be as calm as you want to be. They're going to be like, forget you. I'm in charge. This is so important because if you hear the promise, 
Cool heads prevail under pressure. Then the first time that somebody doesn't listen to you, you know what you're going to say? Forget this. I'm just going to get stronger than that guy. I think this is one of the reasons why we tend to shun wisdom so much. We go, I tried that one time, and it didn't work. Because that just shows how pragmatic and goal-oriented we are. I'm going to do something, but only if it works. I don't care if it's the right thing to do. I'm just going to do it if it works. If it's right, it's great. I'll add that onto it. But if it doesn't work, then what good is it? Well, in the world's economy... That makes all the sense in the world. This doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do all the good that we can, but come to grips with doing the right things doesn't always produce effective results. So better a wise man than a great king. Kind of. Foolishness ruins everything. Bad rulers flip the world upside down. Number four, what goes around comes around. Sometimes. Verses 8 through 11. It's a classic section, right? You read this and you just kind of laugh, although it like gets real weird real quick. So he who digs a pit will fall in it. A classic statement in Hebrew wisdom literature. You can read Proverbs, you can read the Psalms, you'll see this over and over again, right? The guy who tries to push a rock on somebody else, it rolls backwards and falls on him, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, like a little cartoon. He who breaks through a wall, the idea here is like to try to like steal something, gets bit by a snake, you're like, ah, got him. Do the wrong thing, and it comes back at you, right? Karma, right, or whatever. You see those crazy YouTube videos all the time of, like, somebody trying to, like, steal. Uh, my favorite ones are the ones where they like, wrap a chain around the ATM and then attach it to their car and then drive the car off, and half the car just separates and stays back. You're like, oh, got him. And then you watch the YouTube videos where they tie it to the chain, like they tie it to like a Toyota Corolla or something. The Corolla just like takes off and the ATM goes with it. You're like, oh, it doesn't work all the time. This whole idea of you get what's coming to you is made problematic by the next verse in verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. See, it's not just those who do the wrong thing that can be injured by what they're doing. Sometimes your job is just inherently dangerous. Sure. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt, sticking with the metaphor of chopping wood, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Like, wait, hold on, sharp axe, wisdom, welcome to poetry, right? It doesn't make sense all the time. You've got to read it like 20 times to get in the mix of it. But the idea here is that it's like sharpen the axe because it makes your job easier. Wisdom makes life easier. That's true. So you got, sometimes it comes back, it comes back on people. Yay. Some people's jobs are inherently dangerous. Oof. Be wise because it makes your job easier. Great. But verse 11, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. All the wisdom in the world about how to charm snakes don't matter when you're on the, on the floor dying from the snake bite, Right? Like, oh, I should have done this. Man, you're dead. And this is the way life goes sometimes. Wisdom is great, but it won't solve your life. If you worship wisdom thinking like, if I just do the right thing, everything is going to work out fine. Snake's going to jump out and bite you. You go, yeah, how about now? What goes around comes around sometimes. Sometimes you just get bit. 
you might say, man, just don't charm snakes. That's dumb. But as the preachers pointed out, every job has its potential perils. Sometimes the world just doesn't turn like it's supposed to. And if you can get used to that fact real quick, then your life gets a whole lot easier to live. I don't know a whole lot of angry people in the world who know that their lives are probably not going to turn out the way that they want them to. It's hard, it's hard to do. It is hard to be angry with the world you live in when you wake up every morning going, today might not work. As those who wake up with the 25-point list, not to knock you list writers, right? I'm just, I'm just jealous. But you go like, and this is the way the world will go. And then you get in bed at night and you've got like 29 things instead of 25. You're like, dang it! Right? Just wake up and look at the list of 25 and go like, all right, I'm going to try and do those, but this is probably not going to work. You do that, you won't get upset. Use all the wisdom you can, but life is probably not going to work out. Number five, the mouse says things about you. Verses 12 through 15. Opening lines make all the sense in the world. Verses 12 and 13. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Reminds me of something attributed to Mark Twain and about a thousand other people. Better to remain silent and be perceived a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. Right? Oh, that's funny. It's true. Idiots can't help but expose themselves eventually. Like you just, your mouth says things about you. It reminds me of something Jesus said, Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Just give it time. Eventually it'll come out. You can't help being what you are. But as always, there's a problem. And that's verse 14. A fool multiplies words, though no man can know what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. In other words... The fool just goes on blabbing away, and since there's no way to tell the future, there's no way to tell what will become of the fool. Doesn't it make you mad when fools are your boss? Yeah, I knew that some of you were like, amen, but I can't say that out loud because it's like, sounds weird. Um, it's true. Or when, like, you know, fools are in position of authority... And fools somehow end up being the president or something, and you're like, how did this happen? Like, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. Throughout the wisdom literature, it's like, the fool, there's like these great proverbs, right? The fool turns over in his bed like a door on his hinges, right? He's like, eh, whatever. The fool gets eaten by a lion because he doesn't run away from him when the lion's in the street. Like, hey, sluggard, look at the ant, how he's all preparing everything. You're going to die because you don't do it. And you're like, yeah, you fools. And the fool ends up being a millionaire. And you're like, what happened? It's better to pursue wisdom than to be a fool. But the world is a troublesome place to live in sometimes because the fools can't stop talking or even the fool, like in verse 15, who can't find his way even to the city, 
sometimes ends up doing just fine. And if you can't come to grips with that fact, you will live your life perpetually angry. Better a wise man than a great king. Kind of. Foolishness ruins everything. Bad rulers flip the world upside down. What goes around comes around. Sometimes. The mouth says things about you. And lastly, verse 6, power is seductive. Verses 16 to 20. A lot of wisdom literature talks about the goodness of having good leaders and the tragedy of having bad ones. This makes sense. For so often, as goes the king, so go the people, especially at a time like this. It's hard to read this literature sometimes because we think about liberal democracies where we get to vote and stuff. But imagine that you lived in a time and place where kings ruled until they were done or they died. They did so however tyrannically those they desired to do it, and you didn't have anything to say about it. As goes the king... So go the people. So, verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, verse 17, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Great. It's a benefit for everybody when leaders do the right thing. So far, so good. Then you get by far the most absurd verse, Possibly in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Like, this can't be what it means. Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Sounds like a rap song, right? Like, dang, man, this, this sounds preposterous, and it is. But here's the ridiculous part. You probably believe it. Right? I mean, like, you don't, you're like, oh, yeah, of course not, of course not. What's important in life is family, Friends, foot, no, not football, fellowship. There we go, I got the three Fs. Right, and all you're thinking about is like feasting and money. Why? Because it looks like it works. Especially in light of when the leaders are just doing whatever they want to do. And they're not leaving power. Seems like it works for them. Sure, society falls apart, verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. But here's the thing. Money fixes everything. Just got to have more money, and it'll be fine. Look at the king. Which leads to the temptation of verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For birds of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. And how the king can know your thoughts is beyond me. Now, a bird could deliver it to him doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think there's a lot of irony wrapped up in here that's like, do whatever you can to make sure the king doesn't know because you got to stay in power. Why? Because money solves everything. Why? Because, like, oh, sure, even though everything collapses or whatever, the reality is that they're always in power. Super seductive. So don't be like them. Come to the end of the drunk drawer. Preachers laid it all out. An absolute mess. A lot of these things make sense in their place, but how they all fit together, nobody knows. It's probably stuff that we already know. 
And it's probably stuff that we're uncomfortable with. I know I am. It seems as if it would be a better thing if we could live in a world where everything was crystal clear, black and white. Every decision you had just had two options, wisdom and foolishness. And they were even like lit up on a screen and you could just walk towards the wisdom one and you could always avoid the foolish one if you wanted and everything was going to be a piece of cake and everything turned out just the way you wanted it to. But with so many things, the preacher has no desire whatsoever to comfort his readers and neither do I. Rather, the preacher wants to wake them up to the difficulties involved with living in a world that doesn't make sense all the time. You might go like, what does a Christian do with all this? Here's what I'd like to be able to say. Just believe in Jesus. But say it with a straight face, like, just believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, everything will get better. Right? You'll know what to do. You'll have no problems. Your kids will get in line. Your wisdom will be heard. Life will be awesome. But of course, that's a raging lie. The reality is that belief in Jesus does not make sense of everything around us. Here's why I think this section in Ecclesiastes is helpful to us, even if it seems like a jumbled mess. Christians need to be incredibly concerned with living wisely in the world. The fact of the matter is that nobody lives wisely by accident. You don't just fall backwards into wisdom. It takes real diligent pursuit. I'm convinced that Christians have real trouble living wisely, mainly because living in general seems like a problem. You know what I mean? Makes sense to a certain degree. What's the gospel? God created everything good, and man, through his disobedience to God, led to a sinful, broken world in which we are divided from God and from each other, living at war amongst ourselves. But God, through the promise of redemption and through the acts of redemption, brought salvation to his people in Jesus Christ. His only son, who came and against all worldly wisdom in an act of seeming foolishness, died for people like you and me. And then, in the utter act of foolishness, rose from the dead testified to people, then rose to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, supposedly in charge, from whence he will supposedly come back one day. And then your ultimate hope in Jesus is that you will go and be with him in a place where everything will end up making sense. You see, if that's the truth that you believe in and you should believe in it, then here's the problem. Living ain't easy because what in the heck are you living for? I think a lot of Christians are just waiting around to die. But the reality is you're still breathing. If you're still breathing and life is a gift and God is in control, then that means that today matters. However good or bad today is, however many big decisions and little decisions you have to make, then today matters. Therefore, striving to live wisely in the time that you have been given is incredibly important because today matters. Because you're breathing until the day that you stop breathing, which is coming. 
living wisely is a theme we find throughout the New Testament. In closing, I'd just like to remind you of some of those words of Paul that we read this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It takes real effort. The Bible doesn't give you all the answers for life. Read the Bible frontwards and backwards and you're never going to find the playbook for everything you should do at every moment for everything that's coming down your way. No, a lot of it is just like, okay, do the best I can with what I've been given. Realizing when you've made good decisions and celebrating, realizing when you've made bad decisions and rectifying it, knowing that there are only two ways to live in this life. Wisdom and foolishness. Therefore, we ought to actively pursue wisdom and actively avoid foolishness because today is a gift. Let's pray. We thank you for this text. It's awkward and as seemingly random as it is. We confess that so many of these things we, we know to be true. We've known to, these things to be true for a long time. But we don't live as if they're true. We fall into the trap of believing so often that foolishness might not be the best idea, but it works. So help us to do that which is right even when it doesn't turn out well. Even when it has never turned out well. Knowing that doing the right thing is the right thing to do because it's the right thing. God, we confess, though, that we don't often know what it is the right thing is we ought to do, and so we pray that you would help us to understand. Help us to see every day as the day that you have given us to do that which is right in the here and now. Help us to do it the best we can. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.